Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the election results from over the weekend, and then we'll be joined for the rest of the hour by Mark Shea and John Armstrong. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Monday, friends, and welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us. Uh, Ian, uh, I know it's beautiful out. It was just the weekend. I wish there was more news this weekend. I don't know. It it seemed like uh, not much going on this weekend. What did you do with the lack of news that we had coming at our way this uh, this weekend? Yeah, I just I just watched paint dry, man. I just sat (laughs) in the basement and, and stared at a wall for 12, 15 hours a day and had my my plain oatmeal. That was that was pretty much it. Yeah, not not a lot going on. How about you? <laughs> I did have plain oatmeal this morning, by the way. Yeah, I almost course, tweeted at you the other day you when did. you took a shot at plain oatmeal. <laughs> uh, here's where I want to jump off. Obviously, we're being sarcastic with all the crazy election results that were coming. And, and then eventually, uh, Joe Biden being named president-elect, although currently not everybody is accepting those results. Uh, wondering what it was like as things came in fast and furious for you. Were you, were you watching a lot of it? And what was your general feel when you finally heard uh, Joe Biden is the president elect uh, going forward here? Yeah, I mean, it's you got to be careful. We've been talking about this for months and months and months and months. Well, I think it was John Acuff, right? He says there's a difference between being informed and being obsessed, you know, so I mm-hmm. think that certainly applied to uh to this election cycle as well i I, having to be mindful you know because i can certainly be prone to like just the constant refresh on my phone and watching and reading and all that um what was odd i was actually officiating a a funeral when i i I sort of first somebody had texted me i think during the service you know the screenshot of the uh the the votes that have been attributed to biden and so it was an odd yeah it was an odd environment to like be learning that because i was at a you know at a very um a very somber gathering. So it, it all, everything has felt like a twilight zone this year anyway. And so that just sort of added to it. It was pretty interesting, you know, and I'll, I won't say much about this, but I, I did post something on Facebook, um, congratulating, uh, Biden and Harris and committing mm-hmm. to praying for them, um, as they work for unity and health and restoration, all that. And a bunch of people were like, wow, that was really brave of you to post that. I was like, hey, what? Why? Why? Like, enough people started saying it. I was like, oh, have I just stepped in it accidentally without realizing? I thought, okay, I'm going to just be as even keel with this post as I possibly can be. Like, hey, I'm praying for you. And I'm praying for the healing of our country and for the protection of your families. I thought like pretty benign stuff, to be honest. And a, and a bunch of people are like, whoo, are you sure you want to do that? And I was like, oh, <laughs> gosh, okay. Ian went for it again. <laughs> yeah, okay. I was like, man, normally I'm, I'm at least aware that I'm about to step in it or just have. Uh, so that was probably a, a microcosm of a little bit how I feel like, oh, yep. really? We can't, we're at the, that point where we can't even say, hey, congrats, we're praying for you. <laughs> I don't know. That was, yeah. that was odd for me. Yeah, I, we were down in the city in Humble Park with my brother-in-law and sister-in-law and their kids outside. And it's it will be one of those moments. I remember where I was when I found out in 16 that Trump won. Like that moment is in your mind. And right. uh, my daughter came up to me and was like, hey, they just called the election. And I had this moment of like, what? <laughs> like that's yeah. like just this. Wow, that's a moment right here. And it was weird to be in the city because um, like happened in a lot of cities across the country, people just started honking their horns and to the point. One of my kids was like, why is everybody honking? It's like, right. I think it's because they just called the election and they were like, wow, that's wild. So it was a little weird in a, in kind of a monumental way, uh, to be down there. And so, 
Uh, yeah, you know, they're going to be twisted turns today. President Trump tweeted some stuff and they're still call, you know, calling a lot of stuff into question. But most people that I trust are going, no, this is done. It's done. And hopefully there becomes a, uh, a kind of an orderly transfer of power. But it does cause us to wrestle with now. What, what, what do we do in the kind of to use a biblical term here, right? The already not yet as, as some of the Trump followers are like, nope, he got robbed and we have to keep fighting and other people are wanting to move forward. And, and I did find this article at Fox News that was interestingly very uh, measured, I thought, and pastoral, uh, written by Dr. Robert Jeffress, who we've talked about a lot on this show because he is one of the pastors who is most uh, strenuous. He's been on our show and he's most strenuous about his support uh, for Donald Trump. And so with the last minute or two that we have, uh, why don't you help us understand what did uh, Dr. Jeffress, Pastor Jeffress, write here in his opinion piece in Fox News? Yeah, let me just read how how he ends it. He says, the Apostle Paul told us, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That is from Romans 13. He goes on to say, Paul also told us to pray for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. That's from 1 Timothy 2. And then he kind of ends it this way. He says, now it's always easier to, to, to submit and to pray for someone when he was our preferred candidate. But the rubber really meets the road when the person who takes office is not the one we supported. Paul didn't give us any wiggle room. His command applies all the same, whether the emperor uh, was the faith-friendly Constantine or the evil emperor Nero. Here is our chance to show that Christians are not hypocrites. We serve a God who remains on his throne, sovereignly reigning over every square inch of this vast universe. We serve a God who loves us and will never leave or forsake us. And now we have the chance to show the constancy and uh, consistency of our Christian witness in this world. When Joe Biden becomes president, we should commend him for the things he does right. We should condemn the things he does wrong. And above all, we must pray fervently for our president. If President Biden succeeds, we all succeed. May God bless Joe Biden and may God bless the United States of America. And you, you actually sent that to me, and I think what you said was, read the last three paragraphs of this. And I think you yeah. texted me exactly what you just said on air. Like, this just seems really measured. And I know that we're all out of time. I'd just love to know why why that those specific words from that specific person resonated with you so so intently. Because we've done so many of stories where he hasn't been measured, and he is one of the guys that we've said, man, I, I wish there weren't the evangelicals who were just so from the outside, seems so blindly behind Donald Trump, no matter what. Uh, even Franklin Graham this week came out and said, nope, we have to keep fighting. And so I would have expected a Jeffers opinion piece going, nope, this is, you know, God, you know, keep praying that this election gets overturned. Keep doing this. That would have my take. And so when I read that, I was actually pleasantly surprised that he was like, this is an opportunity for us. And he doesn't come out and say, I'm happy about this. Right. Uh, but he says, this is an opportunity for us as Christians uh, to pray and to trust and to uh, and and I, I was impressed by that. I was pleasantly surprised by that. So mm-hmm. we'll put that article up on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we're very excited to be joined for the rest of the hour uh, by Mark Shea and John Armstrong. John's been on the show before, and Mark is the author of a new book called The Church's Best Kept Secret, a primer on Catholic social teaching. We're going to talk about Catholicism and Protestantism and evangelicalism all and how they work together here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. Uh, My name is Brian Fromm. We're really glad to have you joining us today on this Monday afternoon. And we are thrilled 
to be joined for about for the next two segments. We're going to have a conversation that we've been excited to have and continue a Protestant Catholic conversation. And uh, to do that, we are going to be joined by Mark Shea and John Armstrong. Mark and John, thank you so much for doing this today. Oh, delighted to be here. Absolutely. So before we jump into this topic, uh, we would love just to have you guys introduce yourself to our audience. Our audience gets to know you a little bit. So, uh, Mark, why don't you go first? And then once he's done, however long he takes, John, why don't you jump in and introduce yourself then as well? Okay. Uh, well, <clears throat> my name is Mark Shea. I live out in uh, Seattle, Washington, and uh, I'm an author, blogger. You can find my blog at markpshea.com. Uh, I'm the author of a bunch of different books, a, a convert to the Catholic faith from evangelicalism. Uh, got um, married, got four kids. Uh, my most recent book, which we're going to be discussing uh, today, is a book called The Church's Best Kept Secret, A Primer on Catholic Social Teaching. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Thanks for being here. How about you, John? Why don't you introduce right. yourself to our audience? All right. I'm John Armstrong, and I live in suburban Chicago, and uh, I was a pastor for 20 years in the city of Wheaton. And then the last 30 years, I directed a ministry called the Act 3 Network. Our friend Ian was a part of the board of that organization for a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, I retired a year ago, June in 1999, uh, 2019, I'll get it right. And uh, in the last uh, 18 months, I've been devoting myself to uh, my ministry, which I would call relationship and friendship, and secondly, to writing. I've written a couple books. I'm working on a couple more books. And uh, I love to write and I love to teach. So that's what I'm doing in these years that I might have ahead of me. Great. I love that. We're definitely going to spend some time talking about both your books. One of the things that I really want to talk about, and especially with the two of you both on the show at the same time, is this idea of ecumenism. John will often refer to it as missional ecumenism. It's the kind of thing that I've been passionate about before I even knew there was a word for it. And uh, Mark, starting with you, and then John, you can jump in when he's done. I'd love to know, how, how do you just in general define ecumenism, and why does it, why does it even matter? Oh, well, I... I would define ecumenism uh, as the work of unity uh, in the divided household of God. Hmm. Uh, it's it's a work of love. It's a work of common purpose. It's a work of affirming what can be affirmed uh, in common. Uh, and I would add, technically, uh, ecumenism has to do with uh, conversation among Christians um, so it comes from the Greek word uh, oikos, which means household. Uh, and uh, so we as Christians affirm what can be affirmed in common. Uh, as a Catholic, I would add, of course, that the church affirms what can be in affirmed in common with anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, so the uh, documents of Vatican II talk not only about uh, unity within the household of God, but also talk about what can we affirm in common with Jewish people? What can we affirm in common with Muslims? What can we affirm in common with uh, non-Christian religions? What can we affirm in common with atheists? Uh, and that has always been how Christians uh, try to approach the world, starting with Paul talking to pagans on the, uh, on the Areopagus. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I, I would simply add to that, I'm in complete agreement. And 
the second aspect of this is what is sometimes called interreligious dialogue. Yeah. Um, and, and the problem is when you come to more conservative evangelicals who tend to have a view of sin and the fall that, that essentially says other faiths, other approaches to God are nothing but the worship of demons. And uh, in fact, there's some Catholics who say that, Mark. Right. Yep. <laughs> yes, Sadly, there are. If you not listen to on podcasts, they don't seem to know their own Catholic theology. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Including uh, the documents of Vatican too. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we'll leave that for later. But 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 <laughs> ecumenism, as Marcus said, is the work of of repairing the household and the disunity in the household. And our respective churches and communions have different ways in which they may approach this. But that that's a proper, a completely agreeable understanding. Mm-hmm. So I grew up very evangelical in church, and, and I remember in a very Catholic area where I grew up, and it was never explicitly said to me, but it was always kind of implied that the Catholics and our church were on different teams, right? Like we were doing something different. And I guess right. uh, as I've gotten older, I've been like, wait, I'm not really sure that's the case. What's the danger in that? And what would you say to somebody who's like, no, I, I do think that we are on different teams, the evangelical church and the Catholic church? Mark, why don't you go first on that one? Well, the the Catholic Church would deny that. Uh, it will certainly recognize that there are there are differences in evangelical and uh, Catholic theology, but the reality is uh, that the Church, formally and officially, uh, in its formal magisterial teaching, calls other Christians separated brethren. Hmm. Uh, so we are united by our common baptism. Uh, one of the things that the church says in its creed is we, we affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So if you are a baptized Christian, uh, and you become Catholic, you're not going to get rebaptized, uh, when you mm-hmm. enter the Catholic church because you've been baptized, you are a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a Christian with, uh, differences in theology. Some of those differences are important uh, and need to be corrected if you're going to be a Catholic. But other things uh, are cultural differences and that sort of thing that may or may not be uh, adaptable and amenable to Catholic piety. Uh, as, a, as a convert myself, um, uh, this was one of the things that I discovered is that uh, the church was way ahead of me in a lot of ways. You know, I was like, I believe in the inspiration of scripture. And the church was like, yeah, <laughs> go, you know, good for you. Yeah. And uh, um, so that's, you know, that's, that's why I say we affirm what can be affirmed in common. Uh, so we look for commonalities before we look for differences. That's good. That's good. Um, John, John, how would you answer that question? Well, I'm just going to give you an anecdote, something I enjoy doing as as I'm hesitant to say I'm an evangelical Christian, given the use of the word. <laughs> but that's my tradition. Um, and that's where I spent my years as a pastor. Um, but I've spoken in so many Catholic settings. And as I've spoken, especially in Catholic parishes, I will often tell the audience, you know, I'm a Catholic Christian. And uh, I had a man in Arlington, Virginia, in a very huge parish, raise his hand. And he said two things. He honored me, actually. He said, number one, I've never heard a Protestant speak so lovingly and faithfully and truly about the Catholic Church. Mm. And he mm-hmm. said, so my question is, why aren't you Catholic? <laughs> and I said, well, there is a matter of conscience, which the church respects. And there is a matter of traditioning and 
and family and a lot of other issues that, that, uh, you know, might, might cause us to, to approach this a bit differently. But I said, when all is said and done, I am a Catholic. I said, but you would understand that I'm a Catholic. And so would I, I am not in full communion with the Catholic church, i.e. the Roman Catholic church. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I am not outside the church. I am not a sinner, not redeemed. I am not a Mm non-believer. I'm not an apostate. Uh, Those are terms that the Catholic Church would not use about me, and I would not use them about Catholics. Right. Yeah, when it comes down to it, you know, uh, if we we look at the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, um, what— the, virtually the only place that we've got a quarrel is with the definition of the word Catholic in I believe mm. in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Right. Um, and that's an awful lot of common ground. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Mark, we were talking in the first segment and uh, you've got a book out right now called The Church's Best Kept Secret, a primer on Catholic social teaching. Could you tell us a little bit about the heart behind that book? Yeah, uh, I, the book is basically an explanation of what the church's actual real uh, social doctrine is. Uh, I wrote the book because we live in a time, uh, not only outside the church, but inside the church, where people don't know what the church's social doctrine is, not because the church keeps it a secret, but because we don't understand it because we it's not that the doctrine is confusing it's that we're confused mm-hmm. uh and so what what people tend to do is get their ideas about how to order our common life not from the church's teaching but from uh Rush Limbaugh and Rachel Maddow and mm-hmm. uh uh you know that guy at the water cooler or this significant dream I once had or a book mm-hmm. whose name I can't remember. And so then what we do is we turn to the church's teaching and sort of grab pieces of it and use it to accessorize something that we've created rather than actually going to the church and listening to what the church has to say. So what this book does is it lays out in very simple, plain English uh, for the non-expert what are called the four pillars of Catholic social teaching. Uh, Those four pillars are the dignity of the human person, uh, the common good, subsidiarity, and solidarity. And the church has this genius for taking very common sense ideas that everybody already knows in many cases, but don't know that they know, Mm -hmm. uh, and then putting it in words that people don't understand, like subsidiarity (laughs) and solidarity. And uh, so what the book does is it lays out what these four pillars are, shows that these these four pillars are not in competition with each other. These are not like the three branches of government where they're constantly at war and fighting with each other, and they're designed to be that way. On the contrary, the four pillars of Catholic social teaching are designed to be harmonious, uh, like the legs on a throne. Uh, And so you don't want any of the legs on a throne to be shorter than the others or weaker than the others uh, because the, the throne tips over. And so these four pillars are supposed to be in harmony with one another. So what the book does is it, it's 
it's called a primer for a reason. It's just a little bit over 30,000 words. It's meant to be something that you can read in a couple of hours uh, on the bus or, you know, whatever. Uh, and when you get these four pillars, you've got how Catholic social teaching works. And it's not a big mystery. It's nothing uh, novel. Uh, it's not in conflict with itself. It makes sense. And uh, once you've got that, then you're equipped to go back and instead of evaluating Catholic teaching in light of what Rush Limbaugh says or what Rachel Maddow says, you are now evaluating what Rush Limbaugh and Rachel Maddow and, you know, Fox News uh, and, and MSNBC have to say in light of the church's teaching. Yeah. So that's the goal of the book. That sounds great. John, as you hear that book, I'd love your feedback just on the kind of the heart and the message behind it. Yeah, I've I've read the book. I, mm. I think it's, Mark has described it well in his subtitle that it's a primer. Uh, I can vouch for the fact that it is uh, it's very readable. Uh, and you might say, since I'm the Protestant in this equation, does it have value for Protestants? And I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. It has immense value for Protestant Christians because Protestant Christianity has produced a number of different aspects that Mark has gathered in this book because of the, the uh, development of doctrine in the Catholic Church on these issues that has never happened in Protestantism universally because Protestantism is so diverse and so divided. Right. One of the problems that I have as a, as a Christian teacher is to help Christians understand how to live well in a society, how to live for the common good, how to love their neighbors. You know, how do, how do you actually do this? And many, several decades ago, when I first discovered Catholic social thought, um, I realized this was a goldmine. This was, these were Christians that put together the answers deeply rooted in scripture, the Christian tradition, in ancient history. They put together an understanding that was comprehensive that I was starving for. Mm. So not only do I love this part of the Catholic faith, but I love this book because it is a primer that puts us on a level that any Christian who wants to know. Mark, Mark says this in the book. I think this is very important. He says, some people may read this book in 2020 and think that I'm talking about the present election, which we just mm. completed last week. I think we completed it. Last <laughs> week. But, but <laughs> he makes it clear that he did not write it for the election because he hopes that, you know, five, 10, 20 years from now, a person reads right. it, the thing's going to be true. Right. Okay. Right. He's absolutely right. However, what he says is so pregnant with application to the process we've just been through that both Catholics and Protestants, liberals and conservatives, and mm. people in the middle could all stand to engage, not with the talk shows and their favorite political ideologies or personalities or the cult of personality, but rather they want to engage with, with God's truth, with God's word, with the holy tradition, uh, the church fathers. And this book does a very good job of summarizing in short, neat, compact ways what mm. Christians can learn and should know about the great Christian tradition. I love that. Yeah. John, one of the best things Thank about you. serving on the board of uh, Act 3 and now the initiative was the opportunity to break bread and spend you know prolonged amounts of time together, Protestants and Catholics, talking through these things. Selfishly, Mark, I want to ask you a question that pertains to my own life because like my whole mom's side of the family, they're actually uh, Roman Catholics. Most of them are charismatic Roman Catholics. And people will often tell me I'm the most Catholic Protestant they know. And my <laughs> uncle, who I often have a conversation with, he says, oh, that's funny because people always say I'm the most Protestant Catholic they know. 
my <laughs> both my both my father and my brother are now confirmed Catholic. I'd love to know what was that journey like for you? You know, famously, mm-hmm. Mark Galley, a couple of months ago, who we've had on the show, uh, was confirmed in the Catholic Church and the Internet lost its mind. Like, what did that what did that journey <laughs> look like for you specifically? Oh, wow. That's uh, well, it was a it was a warm night in August. Uh, <laughs> as my mother sped through the streets of Everett, Washington to give birth to me. Uh, boy, is that a long story? And I don't think we can squeeze that into nine minutes. The, 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 I've been a Catholic since 1987. Hmm. I've been a, a Catholic longer than I have not been a Catholic now. Uh, so coming from an evangelical background, the, the, the best way that I can sum up having become Catholic was that I became a Catholic in order to be the best evangelical I could be. Hmm. Uh, I have always seen my uh, uh, conversion to the faith. I I come from a non-Christian background, first of all. Hmm. Uh, I I became a a Christian as an adult in college. Uh, So my, you know, the beginning of my life was pagan. Uh, and that's not to say that I painted myself blue and ran around naked in the woods. What that means <laughs> is is that I was someone on a search. That's how G.K. Chesterton describes paganism. Paganism is a search. Uh, and when I became a believer, uh, that was part of that journey was coming to a belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God in coming to faith that Jesus was uh, the founder of the Catholic Church, and uh, above all, that the the sacraments and above all the Eucharist were really and truly encounters with the grace of Jesus Christ, and the Catholic tradition was an encounter with the grace of Jesus Christ. Um, That was a completion of something that had started for me when I became an evangelical. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've never seen my conversion as a repudiation of evangelicalism. Yes, there are things in you know evangelical theology and culture that I disagree with, uh, <laughs> but the, the, that doesn't mean that I I you know I slammed the door on evangelicalism and said right. you know it's all wrong and bad. Uh, and so in becoming a Catholic, that was the beginning of a of a, of a new journey and that journey has gone on the faith isn't really complete until you get to heaven uh and there are things that i'm still discovering uh as a catholic uh i have had to discover you know in the last 20 years i've had to discover that uh the the magisterium is not here to affirm my politics Uh, and it's not here to affirm, you know, my cultural assumptions about things. And so that work of conversion is ongoing and no small part of it for me has been the discovery of what Catholic social teaching has to say and how deeply and badly wrong I have been Mm. in, uh, some of my assumptions about things that I never really believed had anything to do with the Holy Spirit or, mm-hmm. or spiritual things. Things like what I do with my money, how I, you know, where where am I buying my chocolate from? Uh, you know, what's happening to somebody in the Gambia 
uh, or in Uganda, what's taking place, uh, you know, in and around uh, the rights of human beings in my own country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of those things were things that I just didn't think about. 20 years ago, I just simply didn't think about them. Um, my involvement in the social realm began and ended with, uh, am I in favor of abortion or not? Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, a theory that ultimately worked out, what I realized was that it had worked out to saying that opposition to abortion taketh away the sins of the world. I can do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Morally speaking, as long as I'm wearing a precious feet pin. Well, that turned out to be desperately wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, and so that's one of the things that I that for me has been a revolution in my thinking in the last 20 years. And it comes not because somehow or other I became a communist. Hmm. (laughs) I voted for Reagan twice. Come on. You know, (laughs) Um, it comes from the fact that I listened to the magisterium of the Catholic church, uh, which is telling me that no, uh, when the son of man comes, uh, what he's going to say is, you know, he's going to be judging me on, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Hmm. Uh, and I'm not going to be able to rub my precious feet pin at the pearly gates and say, well, I didn't have to think about any of that stuff because hmm. I voted Republican a couple of times, you know, <laughs> every four years. And um, so it, it comes back to... Uh, the faith demanded of me in a way that I have never suspected when I first became a Christian, uh, a much more hands-on involvement in uh, the lives of the least of these. Hmm. Uh, So John, we were talking off air uh, that you just wanted to share a story about kind of what Mark is talking about here. So why don't you share that anecdote and that story you're talking about? Yeah, I mentioned earlier that I love Catholic social theology, and this story really underscores how I fell in love with the, with this teaching. And uh, this was about 25 years ago, and I was working for an organization that was actually founded by two Catholics, a priest and a businessman. And uh, their goal was to teach economics and uh, freedom and freedom of religion and some of the things that uh, are often discussed in our culture and uh, I was I was there. I was eventually employed for about seven or eight years to work for this organization to reach out to non-Catholics at university and seminary levels to try to recruit them into this uh, teaching ministry of these two Catholics. So it was ecumenical, but it had a, a focus on Catholic social theology. So I was introduced to the document Rerum Novarum, uh, which Mark explains very well in the book. It's a very important encyclical in the 19th, uh, 19th century. And I actually read it. It was the first time I'd read an encyclical on Catholic social theology. I came back to this same organization and began to listen in the light of that document. And what I discovered was this. And Mark brings it out beautifully in the book. This organization focused on one aspect, subsidiarity, only one of four. And it stressed it in the context of a particular view of economics that's very libertarian, very free market based, some of which I agree with. But it stressed it in a way that was very... Uh, opposed to any other view of the state. And I'm sitting there saying, wait a minute, guys, Uh, is there anything about voting rights that we ought to consider because of uh, social theology? 
How about accountability for policing and fairness and justice in policing? How about zoning laws and redlining, which has divided Chicago up into the way it is now? How about fair wages for the poor? Uh, how about housing, education, uh, food insecurity? I mean, those things were, if they were discussed, they were always discussed as the overflow of the prosperity the market could bring to those people who did well. Uh, so I am deeply indebted again to Mark and to a book like this to help people understand that subsidiarity is one part. And even in this sense, it was a distorted use of that one part mm-hmm. of the whole of Catholic theology, which is magisterial and powerful. Yeah. So just to again say, this is a book that evangelical and Protestant mm-hmm. Christians ought to read. There's very little, honestly, if they know their own tradition at all, there's almost nothing in this book they should disagree with. Mm-hmm. I love that. And and John, you've also authored a number of books, which we'll get to in just a second. But I, I think the the million dollar question that I, I want to make sure that we have enough space to actually answer. And Mark, we'll start with you. Why is unity so important? Like not just in some sort of superficial way either. I feel like we're all feeling the divide right now. But why why is like true John 17 type unity so important? Because love is important. That's that is what the gospel has to offer is Hmm. love and salvation and union with God and with one another in the body of Christ. That's what we are saying that we have to offer. Uh, And so, you know, as Lincoln said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Right. Uh, And Lincoln, by the way, is just quoting Jesus there. Uh, uh, so it's, yeah, this is why we have to always work for union. Uh, not a false unity, obviously, but right. as I said at the outset, you know, when you've got total agreement on the meaning of the creed, except for the meaning of the word Catholic in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, you've got a lot to work with. Yeah. So, you know, let us pray for one another and work together in love. I love that. John, how, how would you answer that question? Uh, again, we're in total agreement. Um, <laughs> the union of the church is, is, is the problem that we face. We are divided at the level of actual oversight and care for the church and the unity uh, of one common doctrine. Hmm. But as Marcus said, we share so much in common, and especially, and this is important for the evangelical the more evangelical Protestants have understood and found and discovered the church fathers, which has been going on now for about 20 years, seriously. And we have a whole younger generation that are reading the church fathers and not all of them are going into the Catholic church, though many will. Uh, That reading alone is changing the level of conversation and the basis upon which we can actually talk about unity without compromising our particular doctrinal uh, understanding. Right. But hearing each other and loving each other and engaging with each other in the spirit of, of, the, of, of John 17 and the prayer of Jesus for our expression of unity. And I would add this, the prayer for unity is a prayer clearly that is contexted by evangelization and mission, which is why I call it missional humanism. Mm-hmm. Jesus says that when this happens, when the world sees us in unity with each other, and that can't be just spiritual. It has to be seen by the world. Right. The world will actually believe the Father loved the world and sent the Son for the whole world. That's right. Mm-hmm. With like the last two minutes we have left, Mark, why don't you go first on this? What's a practical step, somebody who's listening? What's one thing they could do if they're like, you know what? I am interested in this. I want to be a, a unifier. I, I want to take this seriously. What's one or two things that, practically speaking, that people could do? Well, 
not to blow my own horn, <laughs> but uh, the first thing that I would recommend for anybody who is trying to understand the church's social teaching is read The Church's Best Kept Secret, A Primer on Catholic Social Doctrine, or uh, Catholic Social Teaching, I should know my own title, uh, just so that you can start to get a handle on what it is the church teaches. Beyond that, uh, uh, two things. The first is prayer. The second is uh, learn about the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Uh, mm. You can start that by reading the parable of the sheep and the goats. Mm. That's good. And John, how would you answer that question? What's a, a practical step for people out there who are listening? Well, Mark's first of his two steps was prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, every movement I know of in the history of the church, especially in the last 100 years, 110 years, really, since the church in the West has been pursuing global Christian Uh-oh. unity uh, in a new way. Uh, prayer has been at the center of the whole movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, the call to prayer is central. And, when, and, and so we have every year in January, globally, a magnificent movement across the whole planet in which Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants of all kinds join together for an octave of eight days in what is called the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity. Mm. And every Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox, Christian, Evangelical, Black, White, doesn't matter. If you hear me, look up the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity on the Internet. Find out where a meeting is in your area hmm. and start to actually pray and be a part of such a movement for Christian unity in your area. Prayer is absolutely essential. Love it. That's a good word. Let me, let me encourage everybody out there. Go to johnharmstrong.com, and there you can find all of John's uh, books, including his most recent one, Costly Love. The Way to True Unity for All the Followers of Jesus. So that's johnharmstrong.com. And you can also go to newcitypress.com. And there you'll find Mark's book that we've been talking about, The Church's Best Kept Secret, a uh, primer on Catholic social teaching. Mark Shea and John Armstrong, this has been a real pleasure for us. Thanks so much for taking so much time and joining us today. Thank thank you so much, you guys. Thank you. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to reflect upon the life of Alex Trebek, and then we're going to talk about the COVID vaccine. We're going to end the show talking about the pathway to unity. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back, friends, to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today on a beautiful Monday afternoon. Uh, As a reminder, if you missed any of our first hour, including the uh, really fascinating, I thought, discussion we were able to have with Mark Shea and John Armstrong, you can find that at our podcast, The Common Good Radio Show is the Facebook page. You can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. What we ask is that you subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, You can go back uh, and and catch up on that, uh, especially if you're interested in just kind of uh, what does unity look like? What does Protestants and Catholics, how do we work together? What does that even look like? I think their stories and their perspectives uh, are really fascinating. And so you can find that on, on our podcast. Well, uh, yesterday, as we were all probably, at least myself, watching football and also taking in election results and all this stuff, uh, all of a sudden I was checking Twitter and across uh, Twitter came news of the death of Alex Trebek. Alex Trebek, 37 years, the host of Jeopardy. Uh, and Ian and I have done a couple different segments about Alex Trebek as he's mm-hmm. been very open 
about his uh, stage four diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, uh, asking people to pray for him. He, he was doing well, but you knew that, you know, at the age of 80 that this could go this route. Uh, but then I was reading he even he, he only recorded his last show of Jeopardy on October 29th. So not yeah, very no. long ago at all. No. Uh, but, Ian, I'm wondering uh, uh, two questions. Let's just start with your reaction when you heard that Alex Trebek passed away. And then I'm curious, why do you think uh, it made such a cultural impact? Why do you think Alex Trebek made such a cultural impact? Because you could argue he was just a game show host, right? 37 years a game show host. So what, what was your reaction when you finally heard that he had passed away? And then uh, why why do you think it is uh, such a big cultural moment? Yeah, the the impact is is really... For me, I guess twofold. One, like you said, we've done so many segments on his diagnosis. So on one hand, you sort of knew it was coming. Um, on the other hand, though, like you were saying, like he he was such a household name, and I I wasn't even necessarily all that into Jeopardy, but my dad and his mom were really into Jeopardy. So it almost was like not to oversell this, I guess, but like I. Hearing that news like brought back memories of like watching my dad and grandma watch the show together and, you know, try to beat each other to the answer. And it brought, you know, just a, a lot of nostalgia in that regard. And some of what we've even talked about on the show in the past about just the kind of person that he was and the kind of longevity in something like that that you don't we don't see all that often anymore. It seems like I really do wonder if 20, 30, 40 years from now, like people will still be the host of the things we're watching now, like. Right. Is that a, as a thing? Are, are we beyond that now? Like, do we, do we have, you know, the same type of longevity in? And again, like you said, he was uh, the host of a game show. But it also, especially with so much nonsense out there, like it was a, a show that was kind of geared on on words and education, yeah. and it like celebrated that. And I really, you know, a lot a lot of what's on right now is just like it's chance or mm-hmm. or. You know, not not nearly as much uh, skill or knowledge. So in that way, sort of like cornered a, a, a niche market, and and he just, as best I can tell, seemed like seemed like just a, a stand up guy, you know. And I I think that's probably part of why it just hit me particularly hard. I guess I don't know how, how you felt yeah. hearing about the news. I think you touched on something really important. I do think when when people like Alex Trebek or I was telling my kids we were watching Wheel of Fortune the other day and it's still Pat Sajak and Vanna White, right? It was Pat Sajak and Vanna White when I was my kid's age watching. Or you think about your favorite baseball team and that announcer who has been there for 30 Mm -hmm. years. There is something about the voice of your childhood and the voice then of your adulthood. I think Alex Trebek was that. Uh, And uh, like you said, I think there was a it was a different kind of game show, right? Jeopardy had a, mm-hmm. uh, a, a, uh, just, a, a, a wisdom to it. Right. And so, uh, it was always this prestige to people who did well on Jeopardy. And he always came across, like, I always felt like Alex Trebek knew all the answers that before anybody else did, <laughs> like, he's like, yeah, I could get over there and do it. And right, he became right. a bit of a cultural touch point, right? You and I were discussing off air, off air, the, the Saturday night live skits and all of this stuff. And so, to see Alex Trebek pass away, even though everybody knew he had stage four pancreatic cancer and, and this probably wasn't a surprise, uh, still was kind of shocking and kind of sad and, and caused us, uh, each of us probably, to kind of step back and go, oh, okay, that's kind of a part of Americana uh, that is gone. And so prayers to his wife of over 30 years and his kids 
and uh, Jeopardy will never be the same. There, actually, I read today that the last uh, game, uh, the last Jeopardy episode that he hosted, I said was like October 29th, and they're going to air it, I believe, on Christmas. And oh, so, wow. Uh, that will be really interesting. I think that's last I heard. I wanted to play two clips uh, that kind of get at uh, the effect and the impact that Alex Trebek had. And these have both been flying around Twitter over the last 24 hours. The first is somebody uh, by the name of Bert Thacker, who was a winner on Jeopardy and talking about the impact that Alex Trebek, he was able to say this as he won, say this to Alex Trebek. Let's listen to Bert Thacker. The new champion, 20,400 for Bert Thacker. Any family members uh, back home uh, cheering you on? You know, here's a true story, man. Uh, I grew up, I learned English because of you. And so my grandfather, who, who raised me, I'm going to get tears right now. He, we used, I used to sit on his lap and watch you every day. So it's a pretty special moment for me, man. Thank you very much. All right, so that gets added a little bit. But, but what's your reaction as you hear this guy in tears talk about the, the importance of Jeopardy and Alex Trebek in his life? I mean, I'm not going to lie to you, Brian. I've, I've watched that video no fewer than 15 times over the last day and a half or so. I just keep it. I keep coming back to it. I don't, I mean, it's one thing to hear. It's another thing to see it. Cause he's like clearly, yeah. Yeah. you know, emotional and to, to talk about, to be able to be where that guy is, to be able to share the significance to his face of, of like what you're saying to what many of us was like, Oh, it was a nice, it was a nice show for him. He's like, no, man, I, I know English because of you. Um, yeah. I, I can only imagine there are probably dozens of other stories like that from people that, you know, couldn't make it to the show. I thought, yeah, what a, what a sweet moment. How cool that he was able to to share that. I think of the the other clip that's floating around where the guy didn't know the answer, but his, uh, what he wrote in was, what is, we love you, Alex. And yep. then, you know, Trebek clearly gets like a little caught off guard by that, which you don't ever see from him. And uh, yeah, gosh, I just thought, what, what, a, what a cool kind of TV moment that I, I feel like we're going to tell our kids and grandkids about. Absolutely. And I wanted to close this segment with a, a funny Alex Trebek, because if you watch Jeopardy for a little while, you know, he has this dry sense of humor. Uh, that was always really funny. And this was one of the funniest ones I thought that I've ever heard from Alex Trebek. So let's listen to this one. Her favorite type of music is something I've never heard of, but it doesn't sound like fun. I think it's very fun. It's called Nerdcore Hip Hop. It's Nerdcore Hip Hop. Yes. Um, it's a. Uh, People who identify as nerdy, rapping about the things they love, video games, science fiction, having a hard time meeting romantic partners, you know. <laughs> it's really catchy and fun. Losers, in other words. Well, All right, Ian, with like the 30 seconds we have left, that dry humor. And I, I remember the first time I saw that one, I just laughed out loud. Uh, Alex Trebek was a funny guy. What would you think of that clip? Do it, does, that, does that qualify as dry humor? I don't <laughs> Maybe I don't, think that, I don't think that fits in the calendar, the cal- calendar, the category of dry humor. I could I could be wrong, though. I was, was kind of surprised. So surprising. That, I was surprised that you wanted to end the segment with that because when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's kind of mean. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I didn't take it that way, but I could see that. I just love the Wait, way he, he would, called her a loser. How do you just, <laughs> what other way the is way. there to take it? I just love how there's like no expression change in his face. He just goes, you mean losers. <laughs> I just I just like that. The big takeaway here is that. Brian Fromm doesn't think that calling people losers is is mean, <laughs> but it was it was done in his Alex Trebek type of way. So anyway, we've got these both up at our Facebook page. The world, uh, the, the world of especially Jeopardy, 
uh, is worse off today with the loss of Alex Trebek and uh, a life well lived and uh, glad to be able to spend some moments talking about him. Well, coming up next, a lot of news COVID related over the weekend and and today. And so we're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today on a beautiful Monday afternoon. Well, uh, as everybody knows, with election news and, uh, you know, yesterday you're sitting at home, probably watching football, doing other things. Sometimes you can forget, but then you are quickly reminded that we are in the midst of a pandemic. COVID-19 is not only still present, but by all metrics, it's getting worse at the moment. And uh, I was just reading, and maybe we'll get into this later, that uh, in the segment that uh, where you and I live and some of the other regions, Governor Pritzker today announced that that there's going to be stricter mitigations about group sizes and this and that because the positivity rate keeps going up. And so that's uh, difficult to hear. And I, anecdotally, I don't know if you're hearing this, but I feel like uh, maybe I should ask you this. I feel like I've heard of a ton more people in kind of my circle of acquaintances, whether it be church uh, or whether it be um, schools or just neighborhoods, a lot of people having COVID-19 right now. Are you finding that? Are you finding many more people in your sphere actually with the with the disease right now? Oh, yeah. I, I think it's uh, it's not anyone. It's usually one degree of separation, it seems. It's been a whole lot more, hey, I was uh, at an event or a store where people have tested positive, so I'm going to quarantine for two weeks. It's been a lot more of that, I guess, in my immediate sphere. People like, hey, just just a heads up, I'll be in the basement the next two weeks. I don't have any symptoms. Mm-hmm. I have no no sense at all that I've actually been exposed, but I was just at a thing where somebody did test positive, and so now I, I feel like I'm having a lot more of those conversations. Me too. Me too. And so... I know like back when all this started, I remember you and I talking like, I don't know anyone in my church or anyone. And now I do. Yeah. And so uh, it's been really interesting. I'm, you know, my, my daughter is in high school and her, she's fully remote again, but my elementary and middle school kids are still going hybrid. So it's like all this kind of in between. And so that's the bad news of COVID right now. But then there was good news that we woke up to today that COVID-19 vaccine from Pfizer says that there was a 90% effective rate in the first analysis. Now, there's a lot more work to still do, but Pfizer's chairman and chief executive said in a statement, today is a great day for science and humanity. Dr. Fauci came out saying that this is a huge deal. Uh, So, Ian, does this give you kind of a light at the end of the tunnel feel? How do you feel about this when you woke up today probably hearing or reading about this uh, Pfizer vaccine? I mean... Hard to not be optimistic, right? Do I, I mean, I don't know. Do I consistently strike you as an optimistic person? I, I read it and thought, okay, that's, that's positive. I, again, I, feel, I don't know what this year has done to me. It's made me suspect of any positivity I feel. Like any, <laughs> anytime I feel it, there's another part of my brain that kicks in and says, there's another half that you don't understand or another piece of the story that you're not privy to or whatever. Like that, that's almost my default now. Like don't get too amped too quickly there, Ian, but. On the surface, at the very least, not uh, necessarily having all of the details or even the faculties to understand all the details. I thought I thought it was positive. Where where do you land on all this? I, I did too, especially when they started saying things like the end of November, things could roll out, uh-huh. or end, and you're just like, wow, okay. Yeah. 
Uh, now, I watched some stuff about it where they tried to temper it down a little bit by saying, you know, there needs to be some more testing done here. But but basically, I, I heard one doctor who said we would have been happy with a 70 percent, uh, mm. even a 65 percent success and that this is 90. Wow. Uh, I, I took it as, OK, uh, it's just nice to get some good covid news as opposed to everything else being like numbers are bad and things are closing and. Uh, people are arguing, you know, it was, it was nice. And so maybe, maybe a little light at the end of the tunnel, we'll have to keep our eyes on this Pfizer vaccine, but, but at least a good first step mm-hmm. here. Uh, and then one other thing I wanted to talk to you about was, I, I don't know, man, I, I'm, I'm curious how, if, if you had any similar feeling to me or complete opposite, but, uh, so, uh, the, the election gets called on Saturday, right? The election gets called and By some. Uh, immediately, yeah. Uh, by some, yes, by the major news outlets in, in, uh, as for a lot of our country, uh, major, especially in the cities, major celebrations broke out across the streets. You saw pictures, especially outside the White House. Uh, but there was celebrations in Chicago and New York and Philadelphia and all across. And, and I found myself getting, uh, not like, oh, it's nice to see people celebrating. I found myself getting really frustrated and mad that we were like, okay, but that's okay. But I got friends with restaurants that are closing down. And yeah. and then there was that clip of Governor Pritzker walking through the celebrations with a mask on, but taking selfies with people uh, that I'm like, man, you're the one who's like the strictest right now. Right. And, and you're out and about. And I don't know if I'm just being like a, a Debbie Downer and kind of like, hey, you know what? It's, it, there's a time to celebrate and a time to do this. But I have found myself whenever there's any inconsistency around COVID-19 and what people are saying, because to be blunt, a lot of the people who were celebrating and tweeting like, isn't this a good day? Look at the celebration. We're are the same people talking about President Trump's rallies and and how in, um, you know, how dangerous those are. And I don't I find myself getting angrier the longer this goes or more frustrated by inconsistencies and what I see as hypocrisy, I get it masks outside, but, but we're still supposed to be keeping distance and this and that. Uh, I don't know. Do you have that same feeling? Are you like, Hey man, people need to kind of let off the people were excited and celebrate. Where, where did you fall on that? As you saw these clips from across the country? Well, isn't it interesting, Brian, that the Greek root of the word hypocrisy means to wear a mask. I just find, (laughs) Is that right? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's- As someone who took three semesters of Greek, <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, this is maybe a bit of an offshoot Bible study moment. But it, yeah, part of what the word means, it's a theater term. And often uh, actors would have a mask so that one actor could play two different parts in the same production. So that's often what Jesus is getting after when he says, you hypocrites, is someone who like wears a mask who isn't being. That's an aside. Uh, Jesus was not talking about COVID or masks, um, Just just to be clear. But. <laughs> I, I, I think you're right. I think the inconsistencies on either side in general should frustrate us. It probably is worth saying often the criticism of the Trump rallies was that there weren't a whole lot of masks. That was a big part of Very it. Very true. But Very true. Pritzker had to know like that was a measured choice to go out and he, he, he wasn't like wearing like a hood and sunglasses, just wanted to like be outside and he got caught. He was taking photos with people. So he, that was right. a decision he made knowing that he'd be seen and photographed and all that. So that's part of what I find a bit frustrating because like you said, he has certainly been among the strictest and to seemingly sort of, and again, you know, you could argue like oh, that's a momentous occasion. Isn't that worth 
risking this or that. And like you said, he was masked and a lot, you know, I would say the ratio of, you know, these gatherings were far more masked than most of the Trump gatherings, which that might make all the difference in the world. But either way, even even flirting with the line of what could be inconsistent, especially for our, our public servants and leaders, I think is probably not the most helpful direction, to be honest. Yeah, because we all know after the protests in the summer, uh, even though, you know, people might have been masked or whatever else, that also then became the rallying cry for people right. who didn't want to listen to where it was always. But the protests, it still is. And now there's another one. But the celebrations or and now when Pritzker today gets up in a press conference and says, we are going to get tighter now, not looser because of X, Y and Z. Yeah. And people are like, well, what about the video of you on Saturday? Right, right, right. <laughs> like, what do we do with that? I just think. Lack of consistency is just so difficult here to it just works against every like there's either a pandemic or there's not is my point. And uh, and sometimes when we pick and choose, it becomes really difficult. But another one of President Trump's is is chief of staff and also the person leading his legal fight. Uh, both tested positive over the weekend mm-hmm. and uh, schools are closed. A lot going on. This pandemic has not gone away. If anything, it is just in- intensifying. And so. Uh, stay safe out there, wear a mask, and hopefully this uh, COVID, hopefully this Pfizer vaccine uh, shows some promise. So coming up next, Gospel Coalition, 10 things I did not do that improved my church congregation singing. An interesting article from the Gospel Coalition next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Uh, Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're really glad to have you with us. Well, Ian, before we get into this article from the Gospel Coalition, 10 things I did not do that improved my congregation singing, I am very curious as to what holidays are going on today. Are are you, Brian? That sounded like it might be be sarcastic. No? I'm mildly interested. No, I am interested. I, I enjoy this part of the show. <laughs> mildly interested. All right. Well, you'll be happy to know, <laughs> since I know you're a big fan, uh, it's National Louisiana Day. Oh, okay. So do with that what you will. Um, it's also uh, Microtia Awareness Day. I am not aware. Microtia? Do you not know what that is? I think it's like, a, like an ear deformity. Is that right? I have no idea. Gosh, that would be super strange if that's not what it was that I would think. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Um, It's also National Scrapple Day. Do you know what that is? Scrapple or Scrabble? Scrapple, two Ps. I do not know what that is. What is that? Oh, gosh. I think I want to say I think it's Dutch. I think it's like pork scraps. I think that's where it gets the name. It's like pork scraps. (laughs) They sort of like. More like mer- like they've put it in a like a square pan or something like that. It's a very sp- spamish looking kind of dish. I think it's sort of like it ends up coming out like a uh, like a loaf of some sort. I think. Gosh, okay. I could I could be way wrong on this and my <laughs> I have no idea. I should be looking these things up first. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Okay, it's a big day then. Yeah, that's what I got. Uh, my is a. Oh, you nailed it, man. My is a congenital deformity. Of the external ear, where the Get external out. ear, the pinna, is underdeveloped. No way. It is an ear issue. And I'm looking at pictures of it. Yep. Yep. So you got that one. Uh, it's also fall of the Berlin Wall. Did you did you know that? I thought that happened in like August. Boy. 
That's Germany. It also is the night of broken glass remembrance day in Germany. They're really stacking on the <laughs> independence <laughs> day in Cambodia, glass. constitution day in Dominican Republic. Interesting. There's others, but I can't okay. pronounce them. So I'll skip them. Oh, those are some, those are, that's interesting. I'm going to look up when the Berlin wall was later. Okay. I felt like that was in August, but I could be wrong. So anyway, uh, as Ian and I have talked about often since we started the show, we are both pastors. And so mm-hmm. we think about, especially once we get back from COVID, when, when things are a little back to quote unquote normal, uh, you know, how does the church best function? How does the church best work And this article at the gospel coalition from 2017, but it's kind of an evergreen subject is this. 10 things I did not do that improved my congregation's singing. So uh, these are things this worship leader said, uh, I didn't do these things over the past years, and I actually think it helped our congregation's singing. So let's jump into this list. Why don't you take number one? I would love to. Uh, these, again, it's a reminder this was written in 2017. So it's not, mm-hmm. this isn't a list of someone like, here's what I didn't do this year during COVID. People are like, yeah, right. yeah no right. duh. Just a couple years old. And uh, I've I've heard a number of people write, to a number of these. I think it's really interesting. So number one, I did not turn down the lights. Too often worship services look and feel like concerts. The problem is that concerts are for listening, but worship services are for singing. Keep the focus on the congregation, not just on the stage. This was a conviction actually that we had at Poplar Creek where we were meeting in the round and we kept the lights up. And I could talk about that for hours and hours and hours if you're ever interested, but it was really, really interesting um, how strange it was at first and how how beautiful it became, you know, weeks and months after that. Big, a big fan of this one. Uh, you know, we're still meeting in a very small setting right. uh, during COVID. And just yesterday, I got up to preach. Uh, I like did a welcome and the lights were really down much more than normal, not on purpose. Hmm. And I went back and told like our sound guy, hey, when I preach, can you make sure to get those up? He's like, why? I said, I want to be able to see people's eyes. Right. Like, I want to be able to totally. see people. And uh, it does make a difference. Number two. I did not turn up the sound. Loud volumes prevent the congregation from singing. If they cannot hear themselves sing, they will not sing. If they cannot hear their neighbor sing, they will not sing. If they can hear both, they will be much more likely to sing. So keep that noise. Keep the keep the volume a little bit down. See, and I would say that's total conjecture because I've heard other people say the opposite. And if it's too quiet, they feel I, self-conscious. But if it's loud, then they feel yes. comfortable singing because they're afraid that someone might hear them. So I, I, honestly, this one, I've heard the total opposite. I think you make a good point for the rest of these that we'll get through. I think a lot of these are conjecture. So I, if you're listening, you're like, I don't agree with that. I don't think these are gospel because I think yeah. you're right. I've heard a lot of people say the opposite of that one. And I think a lot of these, you might be like, I actually don't believe that. That's kind of why I want to do this article. I, I'm, I'm thinking this is one person's opinion for sure. Uh, number three. I did not try to sound like the YouTube video. These videos can be helpful teaching tools. Watch to learn the melody and style, but then turn them off and don't go back. They're generally produced as concert settings, and they're not your musicians. Let your musicians be who they are and make room for the congregation's part. I think in general, that's a good uh, mm-hmm. encouragement. Again, what I often hear is the counter argument is it's still okay to pursue excellence. You know, sometimes the... The caveat is like, hey, turn off those produce videos because your musicians are terrible and you need to just be okay with that. And you're like, well, there's something to be said about like helping <laughs> helping move our yeah. artists toward excellence, but in a way that, you know, yeah. is reasonable rather than like, we need to sound like this church. You're like, well, <laughs> they have 12,000 yes. more musicians than we do. It's not it's not reasonable. And speaking of making a joyful noise, I was glad that you got to hear my dog again there barking <laughs> at the FedEx person. So I wasn't going to say she anything. is again. 
my whole family went outside and now I've, I've got nothing. So if, if she barks, you're all just going to hear it right now. We, we know the drill. Very far point. away from me right now. Number four, I did not try lengthy or frequent instrumental solos. I like a well-placed instrumental solo, especially if used strategically to help the congregation think about scripture that's on the screen or to simply breathe in the text they've just sung. A, quote, Selah moment can be helpful, but too many of these uh, and or long solos tell the congregation to check out. It's like saying to the people, this is not about you. So I, I can I can agree with that one. Oh, man. See, I'm just going to try and play devil's advocate for each of these because a lot of, you know, my friends I know. are. I wanted to hear from you on this. Well, one. I and, wanted to hear from you. on this. And one. it is an interesting take, but you can certainly they're sort of showing their bias because I also have friends who are musicians and like being able to play some of these things for them is part of how they worship. And again, it's not about the one individual. It's about, you know, how are we shepherding yes. everyone together? So I'm not really going to fight that one. Uh, number five, I might. I did not try the newest worship songs. We need to give some of these <laughs> new songs time to prove themselves. I like trying new songs, but only after I've seen some staying power in them. I wonder what he means by that. There's also a threshold in a worship service for new songs. I do agree with that. More than one song, more than one new song in a service is risky. A new song each week is too much. Protect worship's familiarity. That's perhaps your greatest aid to congregational singing. I, I'd say I probably agree with most of that. <laughs> Most. I'd say most. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So I'm going to read uh, the next five. Okay. And then I want you to just to tell me which one jumps out to you. Either you're like, yes, amen, or no, no, not that one. Okay. Which one gets you most passionate? Number six, I did not try to get rid of their favorite so old songs. Boo. Number seven. Sorry, go ahead. Number seven, I did not try to greatly expand the song library. Number eight, I did not try rhythmically challenging melodies. Hmm. Number nine. I did not try too many songs in a worship service. And number 10, I did not have my band play on every verse and chorus. All right. With the last 30 seconds we have, which one do you want to tackle there? Oh, man, I think I like 10. I mean, I could probably I don't feel passionately about any of the ones that you just okay. read. <laughs> I mean, nice. number nine, you know, quote unquote, too many songs. Who determines that? Like, I, I think a lot of that right. it has to do with a cultural hermeneutic. What is what is your community kind of used to? And then the flip side of that is how can we stretch our, our community? How can we push them? Sometimes just doing what they're familiar with can help maintain the status quo, which isn't always what we want. But I do. I love the idea of the, the band not always playing. I think that's really important. And I was thinking about that. I feel like we used to see that a whole lot more 20 years ago. You know, the band was just cut out entirely. But like now, uh, it's very rare for me to see a church where like the, the whole band just cuts out and you just like hear the room sing. And this is not right. doctrine. It's just preferential. I like love that moment where you just like everyone seems to kind of join in. That's a pretty that's always been a, a powerful moment for me. Agreed. Agreed. So that article is from the Gospel Coalition. And uh, people, uh, you might not know this, Ian, people tend to have opinions about music mm. and worship styles. So if you want to weigh in on it, go to our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to hear a clip from a weekend today show from over the weekend talking about the path to unity and healing America's division. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today on this Monday. Hope you've got a good night planned ahead of you. If you missed any of the show, first of all, why? Why did you miss any of the show? <laughs> Secondly, if you'd like to go catch up, and we know that you do, you can do so a couple different places. One is at 1160hope.com. Uh, you can also find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review. 
And you can listen to the interview we did earlier today, any of the segments we've done uh, or other past shows. And you can also uh, go to our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. A lot of good discussion going on there. Well, wanted to end the show uh, with something that I saw from the Weekend Today show. So uh, Weekend Today, uh, I believe this was Sunday morning, and they had on John Meacham. He's a historian and an author. Uh, after this kind of went viral a little bit, it also came out that he literally is helping Joe Biden write some of his speeches right. and is a big Biden supporter, which is just good to know in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, what I want you to do this is three and a half minutes long, but I think it's worth our time. So stay with us on this one. This is an interview he does with Harry Smith. Uh, this is John Meacham, hist- historian and author. I want you to hear it and then Ian and I will react to it. With some ballots still to be counted, President-elect Joe Biden already has earned more votes than any presidential candidate in American history. The second largest number belongs to President Donald Trump in this election. Those massive partisan numbers remind us the United States is a divided country. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author of The Soul of America, John Meacham, has been thinking about this moment and how we might begin to stitch the country together. Harry Smith spoke to John for our Sunday Spotlight. People sure showed up to vote, unless we thought an election would provide clarity, provide an answer to the arguments America has been having with itself. For many, it sure doesn't feel that way. I think I understand why people feel that way. Uh, My point of view is historically based, which is both a vice and a virtue sometimes. Uh, Just because something has happened before, doesn't mean it's not happening again now. We're a very closely divided country in a perennial sense. We were divided patriot versus Tory, North versus South, agrarian versus industrial, segregated versus integrated, Archie Bunker versus the age of Aquarius. You know, we have always been in many ways more defined by our divisions than by our moments of unity. As we are divided now, And while it may feel especially severe, Meacham says, not so fast. So let's say that the presidential election uh, turns out that the winner wins 50.5, maybe close to 51% of the popular vote. That's a higher number as a percentage than Harry Truman, John Kennedy, Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan the first time, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush or Donald Trump won the popular vote. Close elections produce consequential presidencies, and close elections are far more often the rule than the exception. If we are to mend the tear in our national fabric, suggests Meacham, it will be from the bottom up. I think that in many ways, the shift we need to get to a moment where it doesn't feel so sulfurous and so divided is we need a shift in our dispositions of heart and mind. To find, says Meacham, at minimum, the things we can agree on. Is your soul hopeful today? My soul is hopeful because I don't think we have any alternative. I think that human nature suggests that we have to press on. As Huck Finn said, we have to light out for the territories. And we have to hope that tomorrow can be better than today. And what I try to think about is my sense of American history is that at every moment where we thought doom was at hand, we came through. That's not a guarantee, 
but it does suggest that enough of us, if we get our hearts and minds in the right place, if we respect reason, if we see each other as neighbors and not as adversaries, that there is a path to a more perfect union. And the people said, Amen. For Sunday Today, Harry Smith, New York. All right, Ian. So John Meacham there, as I said, historian and author, given some words there about kind of the present spot that we find ourselves in in the historical context. What do you think about what Meacham had to say? There? You know, I, I think it's interesting that, you know, we spent so much of the first hour talking about unity, much more from like a like a theological position. But I don't know, man, that feels like the word for this moment. Like how how mm-hmm. will we pursue Unity, like real lasting unity, not not just, you know, playing nice, not just pretend it didn't happen, not even just like bygones be bygones. Like what what does real unity look like? And and do you think people actually want that? Because I think I think that is the other million dollar question. I thought this was I thought this was a fascinating three minutes. Um, There's obviously parts of it where I I thought, oh, yeah, all right, I can get I can get on board with that. Other parts, I think, oh, boy, is that is that even realistic? Is that even something that we can shoot toward, right. but it's something that I think unity is like other words, like hope, you know, where it's easy to rally around if you can get people to rally around it, but it's difficult to actually like f- flesh it out. Like it's difficult to, to live what it's actually promising. And I, I don't know. I, I think, um, I think he put his finger on a really important pulse about like just how divided we actually are. Um, and we've done other articles where it, it does feel like if you spend more time on social media than others, you're, you're more inclined to believe that we're polarized and divided. Uh, but I don't know, man. It, it is. I keep coming back to that Cornell West. He's like, I'm hopeful, but not optimistic. Like that, mm-hmm. that keeps kind of rattling around in my brain. I'm, I'm hopeful, but there's, I'm certainly seeing some things that make me wonder. Like, gosh, how how long is this road ahead of us going to be? I don't know. You you picked it though. What stood out to you? I. I- a lot of what you said there, what also stood out to me is as a historian that he is kind of uh, talking about how historically we as a country have faced many different spots of division hmm. um, and that some of them much more serious, right, than what we're in now. North versus South and slavery and the Civil War comes to mind. Uh, but he talked about industrial and agriculture, uh, you know, another much bigger one than now segregated and integrated like that. I'm sure the same people now, they didn't have social media and other things and cable news, but I'm sure in those moments people are going, is our nation going to survive? Right. Are we going to make it? Uh, and and sometimes you can get lost in just the immediacy of everything and like, oh my gosh, we've never faced anything like mm-hmm. this before. Right. And then be reminded, oh, no, 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 we have. It doesn't mean this is going to be easy, uh, but that, uh, that, that we'll be okay. We can be, I shouldn't say we will be, we can be okay and that we are divided in that uh but that i think a lot of the division is driven by you know the the 10 percent of people on on either extreme poles but the most people i i'd like to believe this most people are going man i I do really want to see unity i I do want to see you know people reach across the aisle i do want to get to that point uh, and he does say he meacham said his soul is hopeful because we don't have any alternative Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Mm -hmm. so um. Yeah, and with the last minute, maybe maybe give a word to the person. This might be a strange question, but the person who's out there going, "I don't want to hear. I, I, we don't need unity. I think we should just basically be two different two different nations here. Yeah. Uh, that we're past unity. Why do you think 
uh, not just as the church, but even as we're talking about here, the country. Why is this unity important? Yeah, I mean, I guess specifically for the Christ follower, I mean, we we are we're commanded to strive for it. And I do appreciate mm, that Paul right. will say things like, as much as it's possible, live at peace with one another. That that beginning part does seem to indicate like Paul understands like mm, there's going to be divisions at times. There's going to be I mean, he literally says there, there will be factions among you. And part of the benefit of the factions is you, you get to see who's legit and who's not. You know, so he he doesn't seem completely spooked by any and every division. That's but right. He does continue to say it. There's a reason there's 59 one another's in the New Testament. Like there's a a common life together that we're called to pursue. And it I think often the most difficult thing is the most right thing. Like, uh, yeah, unity is going to take a, a lot of work and a lot of prayer and a lot of humility and a lot of like laying down our our fists for a second to hear the other person. But I, I just think that kind of bridge building, that kind of peacemaking is is part of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And yeah, it's going to be a long road and it's going to be probably more difficult than any of us can anticipate, uh, which is precisely why I think we need to. Yep, that's a good word to end on because it's essential for us as a nation and for us as a church. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 